0: right here we go hello and welcome to episode three of the rugby abroad podcast this is going to be a truly rugby abroad style podcast i'm sitting here hosting from northern italy and on the line with me today is an old school friend of mine an absolute rugby legend at the moment w- william mcgee will how you doing mate I-, I hear you're over in texas at the moment just living at large
1: <laughs> yeah good good uh good to have me on katsy thank you very much. It's been a long time uh yeah in Texas, um social distancing um but uh things are starting to reopen which is which is exciting
0: you mentioned um you have a little puppy is that is that a euphemism or <laughs> no little puppy I got him last week. I wanted a
1: dog um when I was in America my first time for four years or so, but it just wasn't like the right time. Um, and yeah, I got a little chocolate lab called Luke.
0: Wow, beaut, mate, beaut. Yeah, really he's nice. A, he's asleep, and I'm
1: I'm enjoying the downtime.
0: <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine, mate. Great to get you on. Look, I don't know if you've seen the podcast about. For me, this is just more of a catch up. Like we we we've, we've been playing rugby for a good few years. Um, we played rugby in the in our first fifteen together at school. I remember very very a very significant time for me when you stole my ten shirt. It's <laughs> normal. You you're a great talent coming through the ranks and uh, it's a different kind of journey that I guess we've both taken and and I just wanted to get your view really on what really made you move abroad for your rugby in the first place.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess we were kind of similar in a, in a way as well when we were at school is that like we obviously both played rugby but we also played like a lot of other sports. Um and I guess both of us sort of didn't really crack it at, like, the academy level in England, I guess. Like, uh, I was too small, you were probably too big. Now I'm only messing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's that's why you moved out to 12 anyway. Um, yeah, and then, like... Um, Bulldozer, didn't they call me? Back yeah, I, th- I still think me, you and Greg has had the most successful rangy run in the history of rugby. Um, I think
0: um, we could have played internationally, just the three of us, <laughs> at, at any level.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, so, like... Um, went to uni after, obviously after school um, and then sort of enjoyed playing rugby there and, and then sort of finished up in Leeds and then thought, right, I need to get a job now and still try to play a bit. And um, so I was playing with the Ealing in the Championship their first year up there and was doing it part-time while working in London. It was pretty tough. like,
0: um, And I always basically... Had oh, was that, that why you were on a placement year or something like that?
1: Yeah, I was on like a um, graduate scheme with L'Oreal. Um, so it okay. was like you're like gymming like first thing in the morning and then like three nights a week, you're training until like late at night and it's just like brutal. Like semi professional rugby is, is super tough. Yeah. Um, but I'd always said to my parents that if rugby ever went professional in the US, I'd sort of drop everything, go to sort of give myself the best chance of, of playing internationally because I'd obviously played in the age group stuff when we were at school together. Um, but you kind of fall off the radar unless you're in the country playing. Um, and I obviously had U.S. citizenship through my parents, so yeah, that's sort of kind of how it came about. So yeah, yeah that was my uh, my decision to go was the, the fact that USA, had, well, the U.S. had started its first professional league, which was a, a one and done failure, but nevertheless got me over there. So
0: yeah, no mate, that's awesome. I mean, look, you, you obviously had it in your mind the idea to potentially move if the opportunity came up, rather than maybe something that you were like pursuing as as an option 100% but but i mean it, it's it's an interesting story you were saying like both of us really didn't crack it at the academy level and i think that's that's quite a, an interesting one because it kind of proves to me, I mean, not to, not I haven't mentioned it yet, but you're obviously a, a USA international and you've just been to a Rugby World Cup. So this, we're talking about someone that didn't crack it at the academy level, playing at the top, top, top level on the world stage. And, and it kind of seems to me like that there's something not quite right, potentially, about the way things are set up in, in the UK with the academy system. It's clearly some guys are slipping through the net. And uh, I I don't know what your thoughts are on that, whether that's a a thing. Oh,
1: mate, 100%. Like, and there's so much stuff at the moment about academies in England, about how it's all about size at a young age and obviously guys that develop differently and stuff. Like, I think when I was at uni playing for Leeds first against Loughborough when I made my debut, I was like 68 kilos when I came came on. Like, you know, just like tiny, like tiny. So, um. And then, but there's so many examples, even just with my Le- my Leeds Uni team, we had Tom Francis, who's now almost a 50 cap test player for Wales, Alex Lazowski, who's a few caps for England, Saracen Stalwart now, you know, like European club yeah. now. So there's like three of us in one, in, in a two year span at Leeds that none of us played academy rugby, like properly, like a senior academy, went down a non-traditional non route with Uni, enjoyed ourselves and. a... And lucky enough to have now played international rugby, which is pretty cool. So I definitely think there's something wrong with the English academy system.
0: Yeah, I mean, just just from my own experience doing something similar. I remember because I played with Lazowski, your your mate in, um, well, both our mates really in in the England student setup. Um, he was he was a couple mm-hmm. of years younger than me, but I mean, I think I think maybe these are all guys that sort of took a different path, went to university, got got their degree. May, maybe. Guys that were thinking about, well, if I don't make it, I've got something to fall back on. I've got a degree. I've got um, prospects for maybe gaining a job after a, a crack at rugby or something like that. And um maybe eight or nine of those that team now are playing regular Premiership rugby and a fair few of them have played internationally so so I mean yeah I, I agree with you I think I, I said it first anyway that guys are slipping through the net but yeah it'd be interesting to see which way they go I, I can't see can't see the systems changing in any way and unfortunately I don't know what you think but I was just gonna say that the way I mentioned it in a in a pre, in the previous episode that the the championship the way it's being funded it's just reducing the incentives further for guys guys like myself or yourself who who might have had that option to step up at an, at an earlier age it's it's just reducing that incentive so what do you reckon is going to happen from that from that point of view?
1: And I hundred percent agree because like so I was so I left to go after when when you broke professional left to go and play in the US. Played for four years in Colorado for, uh, well, previously the Glendale Raptors, now the Colorado Raptors. Um, yeah. And after the World Cup, I was like, I've done that now. Like, I've achieved that. I want to actually get back to London and see if I can actually play properly in the championship, you know, and like maybe yeah. give it a year or two and then look if I can potentially even springboard up. But the whole, the whole premise of that was that it was full-time rugby. As soon as the championship announced the funding cards – London Scottish called us in and said, uh, we're going to go part-time next year. And that obviously sends alarm bells ringing along with, along with the other, a lot of the other teams. So now it's, yeah. like, it's basically two mini leagues in the Championship where half of them are full-time and they're going to be smoking these teams that are part-time, like, in my opinion. Um, and that's sort of how I've ended up back out in Texas because it,
0: it was an avenue to carry on playing full-time professional yeah. rugby. Because Yeah, mate, I, I, just, just to go back on that, that you, you moved abroad and then kind of cracked... Your way back into the championship, which is which is a great thing. You must have been absolutely buzzing with that. I know that that was the case with me as well. I, I moved out to Spain. I, I played a couple of years there, and you kind of get a chance to sort of show yourself at not maybe the, not the level of the championship, but you're still in a higher than a semi-professional environment. You're, you're pushing yourself. You're sort of a leader within a team. Do you think that helped you get that opportunity back in the championship at London Scottish? Yeah, definitely.
1: Um, I think. At the time, I think now MLRs at a level that teams would start looking at players, especially if you have a UK passport if you sort of go overseas. But at the time, it just being in that full-time environment in, in Glendale allowed me to then push myself to to progr- to progress it to the international level. And then once you've obviously played at that level and you can put some footage together of you playing against like top teams in the world like Ireland, Samoa, Scotland, you know, like these teams, then awesome. then that's going to obviously attract you a lot more and the fact that I had UK passport as well means that I'm a I'd be a I was a non-EQP player but not a foreign player so you so the, the restrictions are much less on you there so
0: Um, Yeah. And I guess your your feeling is when you when you and mine certainly was when you crack that first championship contract, certainly one that is acceptable to you. Maybe maybe it's something that you've seen championship offers before, but like at quite a base level and they maybe weren't interesting or whatever. And then once you crack that one that you you say, okay, maybe this is my stepping stone now Um, and you're at that level where the championship might if you have enough games in the championship maybe you'll maybe you'll get the bounce up to the premiership and then suddenly swipe, swipe from under you yeah gone see you later have a lot of guys done the same have they moved on to to new things so quickly like you i think i i don't i think i'm very fortunate in the
1: fact that because again i have a us passport they were mid season here in the mlr as soon as that happened i had teams reaching out to me to say well we've seen that news like are you interested in coming back to the mlr yeah. so for me it was in the, it was a no-brainer because um, I could come straight away but for other boys and there are lots of boys and lots of my close mates from London Scottish who are trying to get out into the MLR now yeah. but it's just so much more difficult because they'd have to go through the whole visa application process and now the fact that COVID's obviously come in and, and that's gonna like obviously have an impact on immigration and everything going on so it's like it's gonna be super tough so I'm very fortunate in the fact that US passport could just jump on a plane and go and obviously I was very thankful to the guys at London Scottish as well that they sort of saw what I was that I wanted to be playing professionally full time in order to carry on playing internationally Um, because you have to, to to play internationally you have to be able to devote yourself full time to it like it can't be something where you're doing like a school coaching gig, but then training two or three nights a week or working the city. It's just, you don't have enough time for your body to recover, to fuel your body correctly, train, sleep, et cetera, et cetera. You're just doing too many things. So they were super, super cool with it. Um, Got on the first flight, basically out to Austin, played one game, pandemic, season over. Cheers. Thanks
0: for coming. (laughs) Lockdown, Lockdown. get me a puppy (laughs) because I need some company. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) <laughs> no mate, I get it, I get it. It's a shame that the season ended like that, but I guess you're you've put yourself in quite a good position for for going forward. You're you're now kind of where where you want to be in terms of in terms of location, especially for for pursuing that yeah. international career.
1: Yeah, it was it was a shame though cuz like it was really the like the 5 6 months I was back in London was so cool because I've gone abroad yeah, at that sort of sta- at that sort of stage in our lives where you're like 23 to 27 where No matter where you are in the world, everyone's sort of just cracking on with their careers and they haven't got like loads of times on their hand, like they're out for work drinks or whatever. Whereas I got back to London, 28, like a lot of my mates are there, settled down. It was so cool to just be around them to just like Tuesday night or like let's go for dinner in the city, you know. And then all of a sudden, like, I had to then backtrack and, like, sort of put my career first and what I wanted to do. And I still want to play international rugby, so. Yeah, totally.
0: It was tough. It was pretty tough. Speaking of the international rugby, I mentioned it before. You've been to a Rugby World Cup. That's absolutely huge. Um, Tell us a bit about that experience. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it was an absolutely amazing
1: experience. Um, Just, like, the whole whole build-up was incredible. Like, we never spent that amount of time with that many guys for so long. Yeah. Like We assembled, I think, end of June and we came back to... De- so yeah, we got together end of June and we finished up mid-October and we were probably wow. together for the entire time other than 10 days we had off. Um, so it was an amazing experience. Obviously, Japan, everyone knows what an amazing World Cup they hosted. Um, and it had, it had it all, you know, like amazing games of rugby... Drama with the weather, uh, like everything. The food was absolutely incredible. Um, and on a personal level, like obviously that's the dream, you know, like it's the highest highest level you can potentially play at. Yeah. Um, I, I was fortunate enough to, to get on against France for a, for a couple minutes at the end, um, but I had to be pretty realistic knowing that our best player, potentially the best player who's ever played for the US, um, AJ McGuinty was the 10 ahead of me. Um, and the fact that Will Hooley was starting fullback and could cover 10, that meant my opportunities would be quite limited, and I, I was realistic enough to know that yeah, um, but while we were out there just trying to put everything on the on the training pitch for the for the team so that they were prepared well enough and yeah unfortunately we, we did come up short, but I'm pretty sure pretty confident in the coaches that they'll have learned a lot of lessons, so going into this next four-year cycle and whenever we can start playing international rugby again will be a lot better for it and I'd, I'd like to think most of the squad will be around for France 2023.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a tough mindset going into a World Cup, knowing that probably you're not going to get as many chances as you can, but just give everything for the team, especially, obviously, at your age. You'd think you, at that age you'd be one of the leaders, especially in your position as a fly half as well. You'd probably be one of the leaders in that team. So so I know I know from personal experience that's a hard place to be in when you're not playing all the time or certainly starting. So, um, no, I mean, how, how does that, that affect your approach to training and and team meetings and stuff like that
1: yeah and obviously like as the 10 you in in your club side when you're the when you're the starting 10 you you know how to act and I, i just think it's about what what you can do what's best for the team you know i think i remember watching something like tj perinara said where it was his dad talking to him and he was like look if you're starting nine be the best starting nine in the world if you're on the bench be the best impact player in the world if're you're, if you're not in the squad, be the best trainer in the world you know so you've got to kind of just take that like that mindset. So I had a big role to play obviously as a 10 and, and you know yourself like reading, understanding the game so scouting obviously what, what England, France, Argentina, Tonga were, were trying to do in their attack and their defensive shapes and how we were going to attack them and obviously once once I knew okay I'm not involved in this England game, right I can't actually do anything. Yeah. on the field to affect that game I can train hard and get the boys ready but I'm going to switch my focus to France what can I look at, what can France do
0: As a flyer you might have stepped in um, to training and you are Owen Farrell for that training session it, Exactly, it, well you're trying to be, I was
1: bloody trying to be George Ford <laughs> and thinking he's slightly more skillful than I but yeah exactly that so um, Greg McWilliams and Jacques Friar our, our um, attack and defence coach would say okay look try and run these patterns or like these are some tendencies. Obviously, we only have five, six days in between games, so it's it's potentially only one or two sessions, but like, you know, England, we know that they play a lot of front door, back door sort of stuff, so let's try and bring that into our game and stuff, and obviously it can get frustrating because our team, we don't have potentially calls or structures to run that as accurate as possible, and you're just trying to throw it together and wing it,
0: so... yeah. It, it can get frustrating, but you know you're doing it for the betterment of the team. So Definitely, definitely. And, okay, cool. So, the World Cup, best experience of your life? or Yeah, for sure. I'd say that, along with,
1: um, as a whole experience, yes, hands down, best rugby experience was uh, starting against Ireland at the Aviva, packed Aviva, 55,000 people, um, Adj was unfortunately injured. Um, Started, Unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, no. Um, started played eighty. We got hump, but it was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, it was close. It was. I think it was nineteen twelve at halftime. Yeah, um, and it was the week after they beat in the All Blacks. So it was. It was pretty. It was pretty cool experience. And That's just I, like f- for us growing up, you know, like we watch the Six Nations. We see the president of Ireland coming out on the pitch and shaking everyone's hands, listening to Ireland's call. You know, like all that sort of stuff to have actually like done that shook his hand. Amazing, amazing. Listen to the app you know, it's just like you can't beat that
0: as a as like a on field experience. Yeah, totally. Right, so getting back from the World Cup, you obviously got this opportunity with London Scottish. How did the professionalism of the the championship, specifically London Scottish, compare to the professionalism which you had in your USA squad?
1: Um I'd say that in terms of the USA squad it's probably still slightly more professional, just at, at that international level. Just because you're obviously handpicking the best players, best professionals, whereas a lot of the a lot of the guys in maybe the championship squads are a bit younger and haven't been professionals for that long, or may not know how to act. But but the professionalism of the setup of London Scottish was was a lot greater to the, the setup we had for our MLR team in Colorado, just in terms of weekly scheduling the physio pair, yeah. um, the facility. We're lucky, we're, the Scottish boys lucky enough Well, last year to, to train at the Lensbury, which is where the England Sevens train. So it's like a world-class facility. Yeah. Um, so just in terms of like the off-field stuff and like maybe training numbers and training standard, the championship in that experience was slightly better than Colorado. But that being said, I know that some of the MLR teams definitely next year are going to be comparable to sort of premiership in terms of training facility yeah so that's
0: what that's that's what i was going to say to you now is that you made the decision quickly to go back to the states and it seems like year on year you you you're you're seeing online and you're seeing highlights of games and it seems like that the league the mlr is just increasing exponentially in in quality and you just see some really physical guys in peak condition like battling it out in that league and you're just like well there must be some professional set some serious professional setups involved in that in the preparation for that level and obviously you think about American sport as a whole and just the, the potential there is just absolutely huge. Yeah
1: I mean we had at Colorado we had an amazing setup um, high performance gym where, where the US would use quite a lot down here in Austin as well um, obviously our owners are quite heavily involved with F45, so in terms of gyms and facilities they're one of the best in the business, you know, so it's actually a really, really cool setup here in Austin, so the it's amazing they've taken basically an old f- factory warehouse almost and turned it into a professional rugby setup, whereas like at the back is this huge gym, uh, like first class F45 facilities, TVs on the walls, um, and then you've got Players' team room, you've got all the coaches' room, kitchen, but like it's kind of like the American dream, you know, they've taken just a warehouse and they've turned it into a professional rugby facility, which is super cool. Yeah. And then they've got plans to, um, so we play our home games at the Circuit of the Americas, which is the F1, the USA Grand Prix track. Um, And we play in in the soccer stadium inside that track. Um, And they've got plans to build a huge state of the art uh, rugby purpose facility um, just outside of that. So in the next couple of years, Austin's base will probably move down a bit closer to central Austin, which is, which is really exciting.
0: Awesome. Mate, just a, an observation. It's, it seems to me like your professional rugby career has fallen on you in terms of, it seems to me due to your perseverance of continuing on with the game and not really giving up on the dream too early that you've like had your had your success and being open to opportunities as well. Obviously, there's a lot of guys maybe in similar positions to to what we were in, coming out of school or going to university, thinking that maybe oh they haven't had the shot or haven't had a, an opportunity to to show themselves at, at a higher level. Um, what would be your advice about continuing on and, and keeping your head high, like regardless of the the setbacks? Yeah. It, it's obviously proven that you you can maybe taking a different route, you can still get to to wherever you want to be. I definitely think so. And if you're lucky enough, like
1: like myself, to have a passport that allows you to go to maybe a more an emerging nation where they have a professional league, which will allow you to devote yourself full time to it while still earning enough money that you can live. Because I think that's the, that's quite the key. And that's what's really sad about the championship folding. Yeah. Because if I've got mates who are in the championship straight out of uni who have probably been earning between maybe fifteen and twenty five grand for f- best part of like three or four years. And if you if you're doing that and you don't and you and you don't crack it, because what probably like maybe fifteen players go from the championship to the premiership a year. And of Get them that, probably most yeah. of them exactly and they probably most of them become just squad players. So it's so tough and to just be making that little amount of money when potentially you've got mates who are working in London who are earning five, six times that. You, you, you're potentially going to get left behind so obviously there's a lot of perseverance but it's also having the ability to to actually be realistic with it go somewhere where you where you can play where you can earn money um, in a full-time environment then then it sort of balances
0: it balances it out yeah it's a, for me it's, it's exactly what you say it's kind of you've got to be in the, a position to think outside the box a little bit and maybe be a bit open to well this is if you want to continue continue playing and being well compensated for for it and create a lifestyle out of it as well Um, but then also England has such a good
1: semi-professional setup as well so that might be you know like there's there's some unbelievable players in in national one, you know in England that could easily play higher levels but as you think of like the Richmonds, the Roslyn Parks these boys are working proper jobs in the city and, and getting paid good money to play rugby and that's what they're happy with and you know, it's professional rugby is definitely not for everyone. Even if they have the talent, totally. like you think of like someone like Cinders, who we played with at school. Like he was easily talented enough, but he just he was in an academy and he was with Farrell and and those boys. But he probably just burnt out because it was just he just he hated it by the time we were playing in upper six you know
0: (laughs) yeah yeah so maybe that's part of the part of the issue as well is getting these boys and like pounding them with academy sessions week in week out maybe three sessions a week plus their school training plus their their club training on the weekend you arrive at you arrive at 18 19 years old and you're, you're kind of like you say burnt out you've not got the same desire you had before so maybe that that puts us for not having been in that scenario at, at maybe an advantage mm. to of a bit of extra drive. Maybe I know the the university, like the university rugby scene in itself is like it's kind of specially suited for, for those guys who, who to push on with a bit of extra drive. And, and it's a, it's a really good level to then, to then show, show yourself to potential professional rugby suitors. Yeah. But, but it's, there's not that many guys again that, that will sign from, from uh, university teams straight to a championship yeah, team, so for example, did, did you coming out of university sign sign a I, sort of professional contract? I mean, it was a it was a play to it was a play
1: to pay or pay to play contract. <laughs> yeah. So it was like I it was with Ealing. It was you got your expenses paid for. You got some discounts on gym and uh, not gym on like nutrition and protein and stuff and you got 250 quid a game you know and like I played three games so it was (laughs) like (laughs) 750 quid professional contract if you can call it that
0: yeah no it's that that's tough that's a tough gig like yeah because because it's the time like you say when you're finishing uni you you think I certainly did I I wanted a championship contract that that's like you that's the the dream Mm -hmm. to then push on to the next level and if you, if you don't get that what you want, or if you get a taste of it like like you did, but n- nothing arrives that's really compensates you to what you feel maybe is yeah at, le- at least a minimum level that you're going to like, like livable yeah yeah exactly like you say guys guys that I know I know guys as well in the championship earning like 15k for for three four years and it's just like I mean yes there's a certain point that you have got to say to yourself well is it worth it. For the love of the game, if you're playing championship rugby, surely your mind's got to be open to, and like we said before, think outside the box and maybe go to another country that's going to compensate you you better. 100%. And also, not just that, you're going to have a life experience out of it. And I guess what what my idea around this podcast is is talking to guys like yourself who have had this this different life experience via rugby and. Have, having maybe not cracked it at home and just showing that guys like yourself and, and myself, there's a different path yeah. and a different road to take that maybe is uh, just as fulfilling. Mm. I think, and that's the part of it like, moving to America
1: was like, it, I was so excited. Like, this was 2016. I was just so excited, so excited, so excited. And then the morning came, I was flying. We'd been out the night before, it was probably quite emotional. And I just like went into my housemate, it was living in Clapham at the time, went into my housemate's room and just burst into tears. I was like, what the, (laughs) what am I doing? Like, I'm leaving all my mates behind. I don't know anyone in Denver. And like, and then, because obviously we spoke before this, but you have to have, there has to be a type of personality where you, you are willing to do that. You know, like you have to be brave enough to like go and start afresh and, and, and go for the experience. And if you go for six to eight months and you don't enjoy it, well, you know, you can always probably come back to what you were doing before. And I think that's the most amazing thing. But I don't think anyone's probably ever had a bad experience when they've actually gone and devoted themselves to it. And then the other part that I'd say to it is it, I, it's, it's obviously a lot easier if you're if you're single, if you're not leaving someone a long distance relationship or, or anything like that, because then, you, then you're trying to be in two places at once and that's just sort of never going to work out, in my opinion. So um, I'd say I was fortunate, fortunate that I was single at the time. Probably not fortunate that yeah. I'm still single four years later,
0: but... <laughs> yeah. sure, surely Texas uh, is coming to your doorstep at the moment, isn't it? I'll let you, when
1: me and the puppy get out, once the pandemic's over, I'll let you know, <laughs> It's
0: Surely puppy on Instagram is an absolute goer.
1: Yeah, but we're in lockdown, mate. So, you know, you've got a strict, strict social distancing.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, here in Italy, we're just coming out of the old lockdown. So it's quite weird. Just, But you, you're, by the law, required to wear the masks and um, mm. gloves and stuff like that. So I don't know if that's going to be the case in, in Texas. But what if the girls can't see your face? <laughs> <laughs> They'll just use the dog. Probably yeah. anyway. But anyway, <laughs> I like,
1: I, another thing to go back, I was very close to actually signing in Italy as well a couple of years ago on the back of sort of playing abroad and I had an offer from Padova. And I thought long and hard about it. And I just decided that it was probably still best just to stay in the US. But it's so cool that like, you've also been able to play there, France, Spain, yeah. Jersey.
0: Yeah, yeah, Germany. You played in Germany? No, I didn't. I'm joking. <laughs> I thought you said Germany. I thought I heard Germany. No, I said Germany. Um... Jersey jersey okay yeah i guess jersey counts basically (laughs) yeah exactly no no it it's it's something i enjoyed doing i think you mentioned before that that uh maybe a particular personality or someone just open to the idea of traveling a bit and and yeah i think obviously the opportunity has got to come at the right time like you said you had an offer from from italy you seriously consider it but but there's other other personalities might just not even it might not even enter their mind to to take an opportunity like that or even look for one so um so yeah I, I guess it, it's been a great great journey I've I've been in like four different countries over the last five six years and and yeah you pick up some strings to your bow you learn different cultures different languages and and as you say like being in different parts of of America I'm sure you're seeing you're seeing different cultures in terms of when you're at when you're at Denver and compared to where you're in Austin Definitely. now, um, is there a big difference? There is. Like, but, uh, I mean, it's probably more like political and stuff
1: like that than anything otherwise <laughs> as well. But like, I've been fortunate. Denver and Austin are the two most desirable cities to live in, in America at the moment, so I've been pretty fortunate that a lot of people want to live there. Yeah. Um, but also for me, my family moved back to the US um, a couple of years before I moved out here, so. Even just even though I'm still four, three, four hour flight away, it's still nice that you're on the similar time zones and they can come to games for a lot cheaper and and whatnot and um, and my cousins and aunts and uncles and stuff like that have all been able to come watch as well, which is awesome. So there's a nice aspect to that as well.
0: Awesome. And um, what you, going forward, what's, what's your hopes for for the MLR?
1: Now, I, my hopes for MLR is that obviously the, the product on the pitch continues to grow, um, but I. You, I'd be lying to say if I wasn't wary of the fact that at the moment, the way that the pathway, the way it's going is potentially too many international imports coming into the league. Um, So at the the moment there's, I think it's, you're allowed 10. You can, you can buy and trade slots off other teams. So I think you can have up to 12, but then you'd be another team might drop down to eight or whatever, but there's no restrictions on how many of those players can be actually on the field. Um, So, if you've got 12 out of 15 on the field that are not even US qualified, are we actually growing? I know it's I know it's easy for me to say because I have a US passport, even though I played the majority of my rugby in England growing up, but I'm still contributing by giving back by playing for the for the, the national team, you know? Yeah. Um but we just gotta be like Japan had the same thing 10, 15 years ago where they just got loads and loads of imports in. And obviously the standard gets better slowly over time. And now they slowly cold that back down to what, however many it is now. I think it's like three or two or three on the pitch at a time for each team. So hopefully the MLR guys know what they're doing and, and, they are, and they are looking to grow the game of U.S. rugby, not just a professional league in U.S. rugby.
0: Yeah. No, it, ma- it makes sense. Um, it's certainly what's been going on in, in Europe for the last few years. Since about six years ago when I was in Spain, I think... Think they'd they'd experienced all the problems that that come with teams being dominated by foreign imports and and um, teams getting mm-hmm. into financial problems because of that, but also just the the reduction of maybe the level of of your local boys. It not it's not it doesn't quite work. Yeah. I think I think in the way that you expect it to. If you have too many foreign players, I think when you have um when you have the right amount, maybe mm-hmm. six or seven in a squad, something like that. I think that's when those guys that we, who are bringing this higher level can impart their their knowledge maybe and and, and help Definitely. the other players out. And um, yeah,
1: and I'd say, yeah, I'd say as well, it's about like what type of person they are as well, you know. So like, if people are listening to us and thinking about going and playing abroad, like abroad, have like more than just being a rugby player. Like, what can you give back to that local community wherever you are, like in Spain, Italy, France, US? Like, have you got coaching Germany. qualifications where? You- Germany, <laughs> <laughs> Romania, yeah. uh, Bucharest. No, like, anyway. can you, can you, can you offer like more than just on a Saturday afternoon playing on the pitch? Can you go out and help develop rugby in high schools or primary schools? You know, and like, especially for countries where the natural instinct, like obviously in Spain or Italy, is to go out and kids are picking up a football. Yeah, same here with an American football. You know, like that. That's the battle is to try and slowly change that yeah which is it is it is slowly but surely happening so it's exciting
0: yeah definitely is it something you see um on the on the ground level in the US cuz obviously rugby it's always been the conversation whenever you talk about rugby in the US people say yeah but american football basketball yeah. you're never going to replace them but then i get the feeling over the last few years that there's like more of an interest. There's more people interested in watching. What what are like the crowds like? Because obviously not to like over exaggerate any or anything, but like just flat out, what, what are they like. Are they are they at a level that you you would think oh, okay, yeah, no, this is all right. We get good interest. The, the matches we play are oh, well yeah, supported. Like, I mean,
1: so uh, the, the probably the best supported teams right now would be San Diego, Seattle. Um, they, Seattle sold out every game for the last two years, which is about four and a half, five thousand people. Oh wow! Um, San Diego potentially a few more, but maybe not fully sold out, but maybe close to six thousand. That's amazing. The, the, the final between those two teams last year, I think there was like six, six and a half thousand people at San Diego Stadium. You know, so that's that's obviously the top end. Um, at Glendale for the four years I was there, we we probably were around two and a half, three thousand. But like you know, that's pretty consistent that's a, that's and a pretty really loyal good, fan base. So yeah. I think yeah, I think the cool thing is that it's you go you start small, you build an interest. Like if you can sell out tickets, that means there's an interest for people going. So obviously you can charge the higher ticket prices if you wanted. But then when you go to a bigger stadium, so they just say you make the step from a four thousand to a ten thousand seater, you yeah. can get pretty close to selling that ten thousand seater out. Whereas if you just start with going straight into a 20,000 seat soccer stadium, yeah. and there's one and a half thousand people there, it's a bit pointless because there's no atmosphere. Yeah, um, There's no like, you, there's no, like I remember like the best, the games I was most excited for was playing Seattle away. Cause you know, it's going to be hostile. They're going to be booing you when you're kicking. It's loud. Like it's, it's <laughs> but that's what you want, you know, like you don't want to be playing in a, in a big stadium where there's no one there. Cause I mean, yeah, the field's nice, but at the end of the day, it's all about the atmosphere.
0: Exactly, mate. I can, I can only make the comparison between that and playing in the Championship, and this is like such an interesting thing because you've got what, what is really a pinnacle of, or not quite the pinnacle, it's not the Premiership, but the Championships is the dream for a lot of young players to make that then step up to the, to the Premiership and yeah. go, and when you get your Championship contract, to say you're underwhelmed by the, the sort of people that that come and support matches i'm not obviously crowd um there are clubs have have a lot of great loyal supporters and and you feel that on match day absolutely and there's nothing um in any way against any of those loyal fans but but having having played in France in the Pro D2 out there and getting similar crowds to what you were talking about in the states it there's a different feeling that you, you really feel the it's part of the professional experience i think and and it's it's it seems a shame to me that that there's not more investment going into the championship to to make it yeah. this to commercialize it a bit more give them give clubs more of a reason to to bring crowds in and stuff like that instead you, for years now it's just been it, it just being left behind i don't know what your feeling was when you when you were at yeah. scottish whether you because because i remember going around the championship i played a game for jersey against london irish in the majeski stadium and literally i you could have had a f- 300 or 400 people there or something like that and may, maybe a few tumbleweeds as well and um yeah yeah i mean obviously it's great to play in a nice stadium against an uh, amazing um team with a great setup but but at the end at the end of the day it doesn't give you the same buzz as it were to play, like you say, in, in front of three, three or four thousand people on a weekly basis. 100%. Well, that, yeah, I mean, I'd
1: think of like the last, I don't know, the last like few games I played, we played um, Jersey away in the worst conditions imaginable, but great atmosphere because it was packed. It was just before Christmas, yeah. you know, and Jersey has a very strong support. Yeah. And then post Christmas, we played. We played Newcastle at Kingston Park, which kind of was the best of both because it was it was a nice day, great field, great stadium, and it was pretty pretty packed as well, so that was cool. But then, like the last two games, you're playing Amptill, 50 mile an hour wins. I'm not even kidding; like <laughs> you couldn't even pass the ball. We played 28 phases out of our own 22 because you couldn't even you couldn't even think about kicking it. By the time you dropped the ball, it blown behind yeah. you um, on top of a hill in a in a field. And then the week after, you played Yorkshire who. It's a ma- Headingley's an amazing stadium, and when the Rhinos play there, it's packed out. But there was probably 75 people there. And you're just like, What on earth are we doing? <laughs> like there's just no like <laughs> there's no I, I, I get your point in terms of like when you're playing with the Pro D2 and the crowds, you feel the crowds are invested, and then on the back of that, you feel that you have an obligation then as a professional player to go and perform a lot more so than if no if you feel that no one really cares. Yeah. And obviously that's pressure but that's what that's what we sort of thrive on yeah you know? like you want that pressure to i think that's
0: why you, why anyone becomes a professional sportsman anyway because that's the that's what they thrive in the pressure's there for that reason mate i, I think we've had a great conversation episode three is going to be an absolute hit i'm 100 percent sure and this is episode three by the way but but i just want to round, <laughs> kind of round up what we've been talking about and comparing both our journeys we've Come from kind of similar places, come a long way since first 15 with uh, Mr. Greenaway <laughs> at Merchant Taylor's, and I believe Cobus, yeah, South African, yeah. yeah, legend, Cobus Bizargi.
1: Who did we have? Who was the, do we have Alan, Dick, Alan Dickens, who's now the England on the 20s coach as well? He did some oh, good really? stuff for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, I, I bumped into him because we trained against England 20s, and I bumped yeah. into him, which is quite cool. Oh, unbelievable. Um, but
0: yeah, yeah, come yeah. a
1: long way since Taylor's, for
0: sure. Come a long way since then, and I, I guess it's it's been a been a hell of a journey for for on both sides, but um, particularly for yourself. I mean, ending up in a World Cup—that's something not many people can say they've done. And um, the way you're the way you're going only, only seems to be from strength to strength. So amazing what you're doing. What What's the next step for you? I'd just ask you about the MLR, but for yourself, what's your what's your kind of objective? Yeah, so I've got
1: another year here in Austin um, signed up for, so that's exciting. Nice to have like a bit of security, obviously, at the end of all of this madness. Um, and then few options really. Like, US are pushing me quite hard to go into refereeing. Um, so they kind of want someone that's played at the highest level to then go and potentially look to go on like the the refereeing circuit because they just don't have anyone. Yeah. Um, at the moment I'm probably leaning a bit more towards coaching so maybe look to pick up a um, sort of a player coach role in the next couple of years hopefully still in Austin or somewhere else maybe in the MLR yeah. Um, and yeah and just sort of stay, stick with it I obviously love rugby um, but picked up a bit of knowledge on my on my journey and um, yeah just looking forward to what's next but for now just keep playing and hopefully get a few more caps for the US and and
0: just make some more memories
1: yeah How many caps do you on? Uh, I think 26 maybe 27 I'm not sure
0: mate come on yeah. you've got to know that I'll tell you now 26 Wikipedia says 26 26, uh, <laughs> 26 yeah <there laughs> you how's go. that for being prepared <laughs> true true mate I massively appreciate your time it's great to catch up after all these years and I'm glad your journey your rugby abroad journey sponsored <laughs> is um, going superbly well and I, I wish you all the best for the future cheers Kat so you too brother look forward to catching up when we're both in the same country nice one my man Cheers, appreciate it, thanks dude Take care You can subscribe to the podcast at rugbyabroad.com Thanks for listening in and I hope you join me for the journey